I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to At the End of the Day, the podcast. I'm Hannah Sung. In every episode, I speak with friends who have stories and experiences that I like to learn from. I also speak with experts when I'm looking for advice. And today I want to talk about anti-racism, specifically anti-Indigenous racism, which is baked into the foundation of Canada. How can non-Indigenous people like me approach truth and justice so reconciliation doesn't become a meaningless phrase? What does it mean to decolonize? I decided to ask two people to join me today to talk about how to have these conversations. And they're both educators on this topic, but they're geared towards different audiences. Our first guest gives workshops specifically for adults, and our second guest works specifically with children. So between the two of them, I really hope you have lots of takeaways today. My first guest is Kelly Brownbill, who teaches workshops with the goal of healthy, equitable relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people and communities. Now, in our conversation, she mentions terra nullius and the doctrine of discovery. If you don't know what they are, they are concepts that originated in the Catholic Church in the 15th century, giving European explorers the right, quote unquote, to claim any land where the people living there were not already faithful to the church. That's some context for you as we head into this. And you know that feeling when you hear something racist being said in your presence and you just freeze or you don't know what to say? Kelly has answers for that. She also wants you to know that as you have these sensitive conversations, you're going to have to be okay with making mistakes. Here's my conversation with Kelly Brownbill. Hello, Hannah. My name is Kelly Brownbill. It's important to me when we start a conversation like this that I introduce myself to you in my language. I've told you my spirit name, which is Wabanangakikwe. I told you my clan, Wabjashido Dem, the people that I come from, the Mi'kmaq of Daumguk of Newfoundland. My home community is a beautiful little place on the west coast of Newfoundland, although I live and work and play on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek nations now. And I shared that I'm a member of the Three Fires Medeoan Society. And that's our protocol that we start with that information. So thank you for giving me a moment to share that. Thank you so much for introducing yourself in Anishinaabemowin. And I wonder, can you describe a regular work day for Kelly Brownville? You know, what are your workshops like? So there really isn't a typical day, which is one of the fun things about being an independent consultant. But my work is focused on teaching and training on education, primarily adults. And my purpose is to start to shine a little light on some of the issues that many Canadians have never had an opportunity to have a real conversation about. I would say that the predominance of my work starts with the foundation to cultural competency, which I am incredibly passionate about. I've spent 25 years honing that in a number of different ways to make sure that participants are 
comfortable and safe in the space to make sure that I create an opportunity to really have conversations about the truth and not historical inaccuracies and to give them in as short a period of time as I can an opportunity to build a solid foundation and then they get to go build their house of knowledge on top of that. And I have subsequent workshops that come after that. One of my newest concerns, allyship. I had so many people who were um, spending a lot of time learning about the culture, learning about the history, understanding Indigenous issues in Canada today, and then we're stuck with, well, now what? And so I really started to think about what does allyship truly mean and how do we become allies? So there's a whole series of workshops that I produce. Let's just talk about the shape of your workshops then. Is there a specific goal? Well, first of all, the goal is to encourage people to think beyond their education. Those of us who are educated in the public school system in Canada more than 10 or 20 years ago, we're not really taught history we were taught someone's perspective on history. Our history books are written by, you know, those first Europeans coming over here, observing my community and writing down what they thought they saw. And that is what our history books were based on, which is not accurate information. The Doctrine of Discovery, Terra Nullius, I believe it's my goal in life to knock as many holes into those as possible. So when I'm working at my introductory, that one that I suggest everyone start with, I spend at least half of the workshop talking about before contact. I get very frustrated with people who do the work that I do when they start at contact because that's not the beginning of the story. And if we don't talk about what was here before Europeans showed up, we never legitimize my ancestors. You certainly can't appreciate the scope of change that has happened because of colonization, nor can you understand just how fragmented and literally destroyed our way of being has been in a relatively short period of time. So it's important to me that participants in my workshops understand that Indigenous worldview and that it's not what they were told, that my ancestors were running around helter-skelter, usually naked, just waiting for someone to come and save us. It's categorically untrue. One of my other frustrations is when people talk about residential schools and then move on. Residential schools are an important part of the conversation. We need to talk about them. But Canadians can't be left without understanding that's not the only way our children were targeted. We need to talk about the 60 Scoop. We need to talk about Indian Day Schools. We need to make sure they have as complete a view of this process as possible so they understand what they're inheriting. It's the fallout of all of those systems. And I'm very clear that we are not responsible for what happened before we showed up. It's really important to me that people in my workshops don't feel shamed or blamed by that history. We were not the ones that created that history, but we are walking in to what happens at the end of that history, what we're left with. And that is what you and I and everyone else in Canada walks into. We need to appreciate where that came from so that we can make sure we do a little bit not to repeat the sins of the past and leave something a little bit better for those coming after us to inherit instead of what we inherited. So it strikes me, Kelly, that you need to have a huge breadth of knowledge to teach the history of pre-contact Indigenous life, but also you have to have a massive amount of emotional intelligence so that people don't feel all the things they might feel when their worldview is challenged, right? Everything they thought they knew 
is kind of getting obliterated when they walk into your room. So how are ways that we just regular people can be like Kelly Brownbill when we're going into a conversation (laughs) and then a topic comes up like residential schools or a news story? How can we handle it so that people can be calm and talk about it based in facts and evidence? It's difficult. And when we're in relationships with friends or colleagues or family members, it's not conducive to a whole cultural competency workshop. And I think that people get worked up because they think they have to fix this. They have to teach people. They have to do better. And I think that that causes so much anxiety and it's linked to them thinking, whether they're on the right side of this issue, whether they're being a good people. And so we we need to sort of relax and understand that we don't have the ability to fix everything. Now, I'm also very clear that I believe silence is complicit. When you let the racist comments go by, when you let the jokes be told, when you don't say, "Mm, I'm not sure that's accurate, you're complicit in sharing that misinformation or those antiquated perceptions of Indigenous issues. Now, there's always going to be the hill you don't want to die on, right? There's drunk Uncle Fred at Thanksgiving dinner whose only purpose is to wind people up. Don't go there. Don't waste your time and energy because you're never going to be satisfied. He's going to just hold forth and the more you give him, the more happiness he's going to get at pushing back at you. So, Hmm. you know, maybe walk away from drunk Uncle Fred. But when friends or family members or colleagues say something that doesn't feel right. What I suggest to people who ask me, how do they deal with that is to turn the table and ask them where they got that information. So if someone said to me, for example, the students that went to residential school got a really good education. I don't want it all this, this whining is about. So I would turn that back on them and say, that's really interesting to me because that's very different from what I understand. Where did you learn that? Where did you gain that information? Quite often they can't tell you because it's been so long ago that these thoughts have been placed in their heads that they really don't have any idea. And it makes them sometimes think about, well, wait a minute, am I talking about things that are accurate? Do I have a leg to stand on here? So turning it back rather than creating an argument or a fight, asking them where they got that, you appear to be willing to meet them where they want to be and really getting to the heart of what the issues are. I love that your examples are really based around the word accurate, you know, asking someone, is that accurate or how do you know that's accurate? What do you do if the person, how do you deal with it when that question gets asked, but the person gets overly defensive? Usually a question doesn't have a lot to get defensive about. And that's why I suggest to people that they don't say, oh, that's not accurate, but rather, oh, where did you learn that? Because Mm -hmm. that really deflates that antagonistic interaction. But if they get too antagonistic, then I walk away because nothing gets created out of that disharmony, if you will. People have to be willing to listen and they have to be willing to enter into a conversation. And so I want them to know that I'm ready to listen to them, but I'm also not going to just believe what they say. Mm -hmm. And they may have a nugget of information that's true, but they're taking it out of context. So we're talking about hundreds of years of assimilative processes by the federal government. And they pick out one instant where something happened and Indigenous people didn't come off in the best light. And they hold that up as some sort of balance against hundreds of years of assimilative practices. So sometimes I point that out to them. 
why don't we put that into perspective of the entire story? There have been some, I call them McNuggets. I don't always have a lot of time with people. So on some of the really important subjects, I have to create McNuggets, just these tiny little a phrase or a string of sentences that I can share with people quickly that may not give them everything they need to know, but certainly bumps up their understanding and encourages them to learn more. This sounds really great yeah. to have <laughs> these useful phrases. They're tricky. A couple of the McNuggets that are not mine, but have come out of recent events, for example, one of them that makes perfect sense to me over the uncovering of all of the graves at residential schools is when people are questioning that and people can say back to them, was there a cemetery at your school? And that sinks in a little bit, not about did it happen or didn't it happen, but the fact that there are grave sites to survey at their public school can sometimes make people's minds open a little bit to reconsider what they've wow. been taught and to look to build more foundational understanding. Yeah, that's a very powerful one. Do you have more of those phrases that you like to use? My McNuggets tend to be more topic related, like cultural appropriation. I have a 30 second understanding of what cultural appropriation is. I would love to hear it for Halloween time. That would be great. Lovely. So participation is not cultural appropriation. If you want to wear beaded earrings or wear native art or smudge your house, that's not appropriation. It crosses the line when one of two things happens. Number one, you become the teacher and you, you know, your neighbor comes in when you're smudging your house and you say, oh, let me teach you about smudges. If you are not from a culture from where that practice emanates, then you don't have the background, the teaching, the worldview that's needed to do that properly. The second way is if you start to gain financial gain from it. So if you start making dream catchers and selling them at the farmer's market, you are appropriating my culture. So that's the McNugget on appropriation. When we come into Halloween, it's about a costume versus a people's spiritual dress. I'm going to quote my beautiful daughter, Zeguin. Back in high school was when she first really ran into some closed minds with her friends. And it was a very tricky time for her to negotiate when people were saying it's okay to dress as Pocahontas for Halloween. And two things came out of that. One is from when she was very small, probably eight or nine, she would dance at powwow. And she said, mom, people come up and say they like my costume. And it's not a costume. What do I say to them? And we talked about that. And here is what my eight-year-old daughter came up with. A costume is something you wear when you're pretending to be something else. Regalia is what you wear when you're celebrating your true self. Wow. So that's why costumes are not appropriate, right? Because it's our regalia. It's the way we celebrate mm -hmm. our culture and our spirituality. And then when she got to high school and had this real struggle with some of her friends, some of her friends were saying, well, my great-grandmother is Cree, so I'm allowed to decide if I wear it or not. And the second McNugget that Zeguin came up with is that it may be your heritage, but if you're not living it, it's not your culture. So you can't talk about your culture because there's a relative how many generations back. If you're not in your community, immersed in your families and your community and your culture, then it may not be appropriate for you to voice an opinion. So it may be your heritage, 
but it's not your culture if you're not choosing to live it. Mm-hmm. I I love those stories about your daughter <laughs> and her McNuggets of wisdom at different ages when she was just young. What about when it comes to knowledge? So what if a non-Indigenous person is talking about a news story or is talking about National Indigenous Peoples Day and crosses the line to becoming a teacher? Yeah. Is there an awkward zone there between practicing allyship and going too far? Yes, but there's another McNugget to address that. And I spend a lot of time talking to teachers, Hannah. And when I give Mm -hmm. them my McNugget about participation is not appropriation, it becomes appropriation when you teach, all my teachers turn, you know, startled because they have a curriculum they have to teach. It's not about the sharing of the information. It's about how you share the information. So if you were to say, this is how Anishinaabe people smudge, that's appropriation. If you say, this is what I've learned about the smudge and how I use it in my life, then it's not appropriation. So I encourage actual teachers to say, this is what I know so far. This is where I've gathered this information. Maybe we have an opportunity to bring an Indigenous person into the room so you can talk and learn about it firsthand. But this is what I've learned so far. It's what I talk to people about in the workshops that I present. I want them to talk about it. I want them to go home at supper and to be excited and motivated and empowered to make this part of their lives. But I don't want them to say, this is the clan system that I was taught today. Because when I do that in my workshop, I spend 15 minutes on a teaching that takes hours to tell and then takes multiple repetitions before comprehension even sets in. So talk about this is what I learned about the clan system today. This is what I've understood so far, but not to give it that definitive, this is the, because if you don't come from that culture, you haven't earned the right to do that. Mm -hmm. Again, I I keep saying that everything you're saying is so useful, but, you know, I should look up the word in the thesaurus, I can find other words, but (laughs) I, (laughs) I really mean it because these are conversations that people need to be having. I believe that some of us are having them and some of us are fearful. In fact, many of us non-Indigenous and maybe some Indigenous people are fearful of talking about these things because we don't want to misstep. We don't want to do the wrong thing. We also, as you mentioned earlier, there's this kind of like moral judgment. Am I on the right side or wrong side of, you know, there's this clear line or something. We don't want to be quote unquote bad people. But when you give us the tools to actually have these conversations, I mean, that's, that's what I'm looking for. You did open a door for me in in your last statement that I want to leap through because I have another Mm -hmm. McNugget for you. Too often when we talk about Indigenous issues and Indigenous history, we're talking about what you shouldn't say or what you shouldn't do. And people get paralyzed. I don't want to do the wrong thing. I'm afraid to enter into a conversation for fear that colloquialisms that no one has taught me yet are inappropriate will slip out and I'll offend somebody. It's important to understand you're never going to get it right 100% of the time. For one thing, Indigenous people from coast to coast to coast in what we now call Canada are incredibly diverse. It'd be very easy if I could write a book that says, when this happens, turn to page five and there's the answer. But it's impossible because we all react differently. So if people are saying, I want to be more participatory in reconciliation, I want to be more 
active in creating real vibrant relationships with Indigenous people and communities in my region, if they want to do that work, it's important they understand they're going to make a mistake. They're going Mm -hmm. to say the wrong thing because what you say to me might be different than what you say to another Indigenous person. So here's the McNugget. Here's the secret. If you say something to someone and use the term Aboriginal and they say, oh, I hate that term. Please never use that term again. Don't say you're sorry. Say, thank you so much for teaching me. I really appreciate that you told me that. Because when you say you're sorry, you're making the story about you. Often we get, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm trying to do the right thing. I didn't know any better. And now you're placing the Indigenous person in a position to have to support you and comfort you. But if you say thank you, you've created this really solid foundation upon which to build a better relationship. So I know that we are all Canadian to some extent, and then I'm sorry or two might slip out, but follow it very quickly with, thank you so much for taking the time to teach me that I'll remember going forward. And that Mm -hmm. takes all the sting out of getting it wrong and creates some really good foundations for further relationship building. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. To switch tracks for just a minute, do you have any words of wisdom about how we can do a better job as parents? So what I would say, when you say something to your children, to your peers, to your colleagues, that's coming out of your mouth, If it doesn't feel right to you, stop for a minute and think, where did I first learn that? And if you answer, well, it was back in grade five, which was 20, 30 years ago, and it was taught to me by a teacher who was 20, 30 years away from when she learned it, maybe it's time for me to rethink that. Maybe it's time for me to think the language. So, for example, lots of Canadians are now aware that Indigenous people didn't spring up when Europeans showed up and discovered us, that we had been living here for thousands of years. They've updated what they were taught in school to include that concept. What they don't do is update their language. So they tend to say things like, oh, I know your ancestors survived here for thousands of years before Europeans showed up. That word survived is part of that doctrine of discovery that did everything it could to minimize our presence here. And that's what also needs to be updated. We didn't survive. You can't survive for 20,000 years just hoping somebody's going to cross an ocean and save you. We thrived here. So just like we need to think about where we learn things, I think Truly being an ally means being really in tune with yourself, your particular biases, your education or lack thereof. And so sometimes 
we say things to our children like we should treat everyone the same. That's a golden rule, right? Treat everyone the way you wish to be treated. The problem is, is that not everyone feels the same way you do. Not everyone has the same life experiences that you do. And when we treat everyone the same, we actually create inequity in our society. So when we're talking to our children, we shouldn't say, treat everyone like you want to be treated, treat everyone the same. We should say things like, I wonder how they would like to be treated. I wonder Mm -hmm. if we can learn how they would like to be talked to. So raising children to understand that difference is okay, that difference makes our life richer. We believe in what I call a plurality of wisdoms. So let's not treat everyone the same. Let's treat everyone how they want to be treated. And planting that in your children's mind, I think, is 90% of the way to creating the kind of society that we're hoping for. Mm Mm-hmm. I've learned so many things from you today, and I've had good practices just be reinforced, you know, like the reminder that silence is complicit, but there are times when you need to walk away. Is there anything else that you want to kind of arm listeners with as we go forth into the world and inevitably, you know, bump up against the conversation or a comment that is anti-Indigenous and is racist and that we need to speak up on? Just to be sure that you understand your comfort is one of your best assets. So if someone has said something and you, you're pretty sure that it's wrong, but you don't feel like you have the knowledge necessary to maybe challenge that particular idea, don't worry about that. Take that as a sign that it's time for you to do some more work. There's lots of work to be done. And Working on reconciliation can't be something you do off the corner of your desk. One of the things I tell people over and over again is you need to be present in these communities to understand what it is that we need, what it is that we're looking for, and how to combat some of these anti-Indigenous sentiments that still exist in our community. So go to a powwow. If you have a friendship center in the area, call them and ask if they have any classes you might participate in. Be present in the Indigenous community in your region. That's what's going to prepare you to have these conversations. So take every training course you possibly can, read the books, watch the movies, and be present. And I think that will not just give you a sense of peace that you're putting your feet on the proper path, but it will also make you more confident and comfortable to help others join you there. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for today, Kelly, and for your wisdom. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Chimi Kelly has great advice for how to have tough conversations around race and racism. But what about when you're having these conversations with kids? My next guest is Madeline McCracken from the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. I greatly admire this organization, especially for the leadership of their executive director, Cindy Blackstock, who has challenged the Canadian government repeatedly on their discriminatory funding for services for Indigenous children, like healthcare and education. Here's my conversation with Madeline McCracken. Tanshi, bonjour, hello. My name is Madeline McCracken. I'm Red River Machif. My families are Chartran and Bruce. I'm currently located on Treaty 7 territory of the Nisithapi of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which belongs to Siksiga, Gainabugani, Sitina, Yehin, and Koda Nations. And this homeland and this space and place is also home to uh, the Northwest uh, historical Metis homeland, of which I, I still proudly belong to, too. So 
it's very wonderful to be here to talk with you because I think with our conversation today, it's also in the spirit of reconciliation. It's also in the spirit of talking about these big conversations that might be difficult, some might feel, but it's actually quite easy if you just know how. I'm so glad. It is such a pleasure to meet you. And as you were introducing yourself, a couple of words really stood out to me. You know, like you said that it can be easy to talk about this stuff with people. And so I I really want to know in your work as an educator, you know, where do you start? I love that question. And I always root it with stories. I always think about stories and the way that folks can understand another perspective, another identity And it's always through stories. So I think about accessible language, accessible books. What we have here at the Caring Society, too, are the Spirit Bear book series. And Mm -hmm. his books are so wonderful. And Spirit Bear, oh, I got to share who Spirit Bear is, first of all. Yeah. (laughs) He's our embarrassed. So he supports the work of truth and reconciliation. And he also was gifted to us by the Carrier Sakani Tribal Council back in 2008. And he's a teddy bear. Very cute. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) He was given to us in ceremony and with immense protocol too. So the spirit that he holds with him is so important to the work that we're doing because what he ended up doing with Dr. Cindy Blackstock too was he showed up and he bared witness at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in support of Jordan's principle to ensure that it was fully implemented and and enacted. Of course, the ruling in 2016 was really important to us too, where Canada finally shared that Canada was in fact discriminating against First Nations families and and children. So Spirit Bear is a stuffed animal that bears witness and is a teaching tool or kind of proxy for children to understand the Jordan's principle and really the fight that Cindy Blackstock has been engaged with in terms of the government of Canada. And if you could tell us a little bit more about Jordan's principle and exactly how it affects Indigenous children. Jordan's principle is a child's first ruling for ensuring that First Nations children are receiving the services and access to services that they need when they need them. It is named in honor of Jordan River Anderson, who is a First Nations boy from Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba. And unfortunately, he passed away. So he represents the other children as well who are being impacted by not receiving the services that they need. Because with with his case, the government of Manitoba and the government of Canada were fighting against each other on who was actually going to pay the bill for Jordan's services and his at-home care for what he needed because he had a lot of uh, disabilities, unfortunately. So... With that fight against each other, they didn't put the child first. And that's not okay. And that's why it's discriminatory. So we've held conversations with children and youth. And they're sharing like, oh my gosh, we had no idea. But now we know what can we do. And a lot of folks are writing letters. And they're holding conversations in easy ways. Because the way that we have also shared our informational resources, say, for example, like the Spirit Bear books, It's done so in a way where kids just take it and they run with it. There's a quote that Cindy also says too, that children, they are the ambassadors of love and care. Like they they just know all these important things and they carry this with them every single day. Hmm. 
when I think about news stories, for example, you know, it's been one year since the discovery of 215 unmarked graves at the former site of the Kamloops Residential School. And I had no idea how to talk about that with my children. How did you talk about that with young children? It's so interesting because the way that I've now approached educational research, for example, I think that's actually really helped me with also my conversations. There's this one uh, researcher, his name is Dwayne Donald, and he's Papa Chase Cree from Treaty 6 territory, so just north of of, uh, Treaty 7 here. What he shares is this ethic of relationality. And what this means is this ability to acknowledge that Indigenous and non-Indigenous folks actually walk hand in hand together. We have a shared history together ever since Canada became a country. He says, too, that it is not reconciliation, though, but a beginning process of actually building an ethical relationship with each other, rooted in respect, rooted in understanding. So that's a really meaningful way to engage in those conversations. Every single one of us has a place here. Every single one of us has a responsibility here. And then I think about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and the survivors who bravely shared their testimonies, their experiences of going through the residential school experience. And they shared an action plan to and with all peoples in Canada. And Spirit Bear, he created a guide with the consent of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, of course. And it's sharing the calls to action in accessible and child-friendly language so that it's easy for kids also to take up this work and respond to the calls. This is for what age groups would you say? I'd say kindergarten to grade six. We try our best to make our resources as public, as free as possible. But the thing is, not too many folks are actually aware that we provide these kinds of resources. I'm just quickly going through the book. It really is written in language for children, which is just such a service, because I think that is even good for parents, if parents can go through the book with children. Call 26. We call on all governments in Canada to change the laws that say Aboriginal people can't get justice for unfair things that happened a long time ago. That is definitely in child-friendly language, and it's a sense of justice that, of course, they can understand because just because something happened a long time ago does not mean that you can't get justice today. Mm -hmm. I wonder when you are speaking to kids, so let's keep it to, let's say, elementary age kids. Do you have any general guidelines for yourself on how to talk about anti-racism? Because if you're talking about anti-racism, you're talking about racism too. You're talking about things that are disturbing. You're teaching them things that are new to them that are kind of might be blowing their minds in terms of, Mm -hmm. oh, that's what Canada was like. That's what Canada is still like. What are some guidelines that you keep in place when you're talking about these issues? Always center conversations around truth, because this is all about the truth. And finally, it coming to light. So kids, yet again, they understand that they know it's not good to lie. They know it's not good to hurt other people. And because of these values that they already inherently know and they feel, they know that, oh my goodness, this happened. I don't want to hurt anyone else now. I don't want this to be a part of what I now choose to do and how I treat other people around me. 
So for example, if you share the orange shirt story, say by Phyllis Webstead, and if you go through that process, you can pre-tell them, hey, this is a story about residential schools. Residential schools started in Canada because of the Indian Act and because of people who were in power at that time. They decided to create schools to take away the culture and the brilliance and the beauty of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. And because of this taking away, right now, communities are regaining and reclaiming and being proud of who they are. And even the government could not take that away from these communities, from our communities. When you do teach these notions, it's also really important to share empowering and brilliant notions of our communities too, because we are also so beautiful and there's so much good. So it has to be a balance. It's important for us to share this knowledge with them, especially in a way that's safe, that's caring, that's in love, that's with empathy, because they're the ones who are going to take this with them for the rest of their lives too and run with it. Thank you so much, Madeline, for taking the time to speak with me and for teaching us today. Aw, thank you so much for inviting me. Kachi Marci, and thank you so much. Thank you for listening to At the End of the Day. Share this podcast with a friend or give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Now, in the show notes, we've provided links to some resources. One of them is a site where you can buy some books for yourself or your kids. Kelly recommends it. It's called goodminds.com, a First Nations family-owned business passionate about Indigenous education. Also, please check out the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society website. They have educational resources and you can consider making a donation. I do it every year in lieu of a teacher's gift for my children's teachers who don't need another mug. And I let them know that I made the donation in the spirit of wishing that every child could have such a safe and caring learning environment. So you can find them at fncaringsociety.com. This episode was produced by Olivia Trono and me, Hannah Sung. Theme music for the show is a song called Commentators, written by Jeremy Singer and performed by Hank. At the End of the Day is brought to you by a team, including editorial assistant Francis Kim and newsletter editor Laura Hensley. And if you are contributing to the Patreon for the show, thank you so much. That includes Claire, Catherine, Laura, Sophia, Anne, Liz, and Jenna. Your support of this show is what brings it to life. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find my newsletter and find our Patreon link at endoftheday.ca. This podcast is part of the Media Girlfriends Network, and you can find us at mediagirlfriends.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.